I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. The rod is an implement of, of discipline. And wrath is obviously hatred, but God's hatred is not expressed here. We can, we can see, obviously, God's compassions change not in Malachi 3.6. And at the same time, we also know that in verse 22, for example, it says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. And it's a little bit longer there going on about the mercies of God. So this man is not the object of God's wrath. Okay? This language is very important and useful. Okay? We talk about Christ undergoing the wrath of God. He doesn't undergo the wrath of God in the sense of God hating him. God the Father never hates the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffers the, the externals. He suffers the curse of God, which is a sign of wrath. And the same is true here. Jeremiah is not an object of God's wrath. He suffers the curse, and the rod increases the curse on him. Now, Lord Jesus Christ was not given the rod to teach him. He wasn't being disciplined, and he wasn't being punished for his own sins. He was punished for other people's sins, and he was tested. Now, all of the elect do not receive punishment for their sins. They receive discipline. But Christ has paid for all of our sins. He's taken the punishment in full. So that has to do with vengeance and the demands of justice, the satisfaction of debt. Christ satisfies our debt in full. For this man, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. And so that figure of speech, of his wrath, is talking about the idea of undergoing the things that are the signs of wrath, which is curse. So he, by the rod of God, receives curse as a thing bringing affliction. And we're going to go through these curses, and these curses, the language of them is very similar in many parts to the language you find in Job. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Now, this idea of darkness is not uh, the idea that he's preventing, that God is preventing this man from knowing the truth at all. Although one of the disciplines that God brings, sometimes he darkens our minds in a moment in order to show us the, 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 the terror that can come from not having wisdom. He can... He can keep us from wisdom, and sometimes he, he prevents us from gaining new insights in order to discipline us. But my understanding in this text right here, what's being said is, in, he has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. It's talking about this idea of, of, of being losing out on the, the blessings externally of God. So there's this sort of this place of, of terror, this place of, of, of pain and suffering. So even though the doctrine of the idea of God uh, not illuminating is a type of discipline, causing us to be given over to unbelief in some area or whatever for sin as a part of the discipline. That's true. I don't understand it to be what's being said here. And the reason is because the stuff that's following on is a listing out of a bunch of things that are, um, that are, that are externals uh, that are being brought. Um, I want to pause and I want to take you to the Westminster Confession, 
in chapter 5 is the famous chapter on providence. And I want to I want to jump to section 5 in particular. But we're going to look at section 4 first. So while you're turning to section 5, I'm going to read section 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall, right? So the first sin, and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, but such as has joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them, and a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature, and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. And so God is not the approver of sin. He does not say that sin is good, though he uses it to accomplish good ends. And he's not the author of sin, which does not mean he's not the ultimate cause. We just If that's what's being said at the end there, what it says is like, God causes sin, but not in a way where he's the cause of sin. It's not, that's, that's literally how most Presbyterian ministers I've ever talked to about this passage of the Westminster Confession will try to explain it away. And so they don't want to deal with the reality of God decreeing sin. Uh, but if they want to get away with that, they should stop reading the Bible and they should stop reading the Westminster Confession. They're not going to get much help. The author of sin is not the effectual cause or the ultimate cause of sin, the author of sin is the meritorious cause. Okay, so the, if somebody is the author of sin, it means that they're the chargeable cause of sin, the, the responsible cause, the answerable cause, the chargeable cause. So God is not the chargeable cause, and we've talked about why. Because he's the definition of good. He is above all judges. He is above all standards. He is the definition of good. And there is no one who can say to him, why have you done this? There are no judges. No standard. No judge above him. And he is the definition. And without that definition, there is no definition of good. So, five. That is necessary for us to receive the comfort that comes in the rest of Lamentations. And it's necessary for us to understand and receive the comfort of section 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, section 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled. Okay, so sometimes God brings, as a chastisement, as a discipline, sin, for sin. You chase after some sin, and God gives you over to some sin. He goes, all right, here you go. You want this so bad? You can have it. And that should be terrifying. Right, when God says, okay, fine, you can have it, that's terrifying. It should be terrifying. God giving us over to something that is not what we're designed for. At the same time, sometimes, he hands us over 
to some sort of temptation or corruption of our own heart so that we can see the hidden strength of sin in us to avoid pride, to avoid self-righteousness, and to avoid a lack of mercy toward others. It's also to make sure that we understand the deceitfulness of our own hearts, which allows us to be more on guard and allows us to help others to examine themselves more effectively and to be more on guard, that they may be humbled and that we further understand who God is, who we are, our need of salvation, and the fact that salvation comes entirely from outside of us, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. So when you realize how much you are corrupt and how wicked you are, you realize more and more how much you need the grace of God to uphold you. And to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. So you don't go, I can handle this, I'm good, I'm strong enough, I'm whatever. You go, I'm going to remove this thing. I'm going to remove this temptation. I'm going to remove this occasion of sin. I'm going to order things well and not depend upon, not lean upon arrogantly my own strength as though I can rely upon the strength of my own character to be the guard against this sin. And for sundry other just and holy ends, the Westminster Assembly was really good at writing etc. clauses. Now, back to Lamentations. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. God's power has been used in such a way as to bring harm or curse on Jeremiah and on many saints in life in a way that is a temporary harm that's for ultimate good. The rod of his wrath. Affliction. He has aged my flesh and my skin. This is the part of the curse that comes from the fall is old age. He's aged my flesh and my skin. The, the body beginning to break down. He has broken my bones. Right, the inward strength. There may be literal broken bones and as well as the idea of inwardly breaking of strength. I mean, have any of you ever had a time where you've gone through intense trial and at the end of pushing through something, afterward you feel as though you are weak in your bones, right? There is this, there is this, it's like the strength has gone out of you. He has besieged me. You know, in general, we we all kind of get that being besieged is like, Oh, you're surrounded by people seeking your harm, trapping you in, preventing good stuff from coming in, trying to put bad stuff in there. But sieges mean, and, and Israel literally, or Jerusalem literally underwent a siege that had this happen. Sieges mean that your body consumes itself because there's not enough food. Sieges mean that people are trapped in close proximity and strife increases and disease increases and resourcing decreases and strength decreases and law and order and love decrease to the point where you see the delicate woman consume her own child. Right? These are the things that happen 
in sieges. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. Woe, you know, woe is a call of, of cursedness. With the, with the prophets, what you find that gets talked about often in terms of the prophets, you have the, the 12 minor prophets, the four major prophets, and Lamentation being one of those books by one of the major prophets. In all of these, you find the blessings, the curses, the, the covenantal blessings, the covenantal curses, and these are all called oracles. There's the oracles of God, the word of God coming to the people of God, the oracles of God. And these oracles are all either oracles of weal or oracles of woe. Woe is curse. Cursed am I. Wheel is prosperity. Root of the word wealth. Wheels. Surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places. Like the dead of long ago. Now people take these little verses, like the dead of long ago, dark places. Does this mean, you know, that there's some sort of soul sleep waiting for resurrection or... This is the Sadducees may be right, and you know, souls disappear after people die, or maybe atheists are right, and the soul is a figment of people's imagination. Maybe the papists are right, and you know, Old Testament saints had to go to like, you know, neutral place or purgatory or go to hell and wait, so they're in a dark place. That doesn't make any sense. We know the scriptures don't teach that. They teach that Abraham's bosom was a good place for Old Testament saints. So. There are only two possible interpretations that I know of that are acceptable for this passage. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. In other words, he has put me in a place that's like what the reprobate will undergo in death. So a hellish condition, a cursed condition in life. Or, he's put me in a dark place where my actions are like a shadow. The dead are like shadows for us. For we, we who are living, they're like a shadow. There's, they're not here anymore. They're not talking to us anymore. They're not, they're not interacting with us. And so, his life, though he's alive, is like the life of a person who's dead. So, I think those, I don't know which of those it is. His life is like that of the reprobate, or his life is like the dead, in, in terms of the perspective of those who are alive now. I'm not sure which of those. So, he set me in dark places, like the dead of long ago. The other thing could be is just the idea of a tomb. He's, his life is like a tomb, which is another way of talking about the shadow, you know, being like a shadow. Seven, he has hedged me in so that I cannot, when you see the word hedged in, normally you think of God's protection, so that I can't be harmed. But this sentence doesn't end that way. He's hedged me in so I can't get out. A word you associate with protection and blessing is here, he's hedged me in like a prison guard. The walls can be used in different ways. He has made my chain heavy. This is the chain of a prisoner or slave. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. 
He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. Okay? He's made it very hard to get out. Down to making it so that the pathways aren't even straight. Right? So we talk about the blessedness of the righteous. You've got, you got a highway. There's nothing in your way. There's not a hedgerow. It's a highway and it's straight. That's the way of the blessed man in Proverbs. There's a hedgerow in front of you if you're a fool trying to go off the road. There is this idea of, of all the stuff that slows you down and the crooked path and, and difficulty there for the wicked. And the righteous, they get God hearing them and they enjoy His favorable presence. Well, Jeremiah is saying, God has shut out His prayer, blocked His ways with hewn stone, and made His path crooked. Give Him a heavy chain and hedged Him in so they can't get out. He feels like a prisoner in the curse of God. Prisoner in the curse of God. Anytime where you have undergone some difficulty for a prolonged period that dominates your thoughts, and you pray and you pray, and you do not feel as though God is answering, this is how you may we well feel. And these are the kinds of complaints that we should lay at God's feet. The Psalms and Lamentations teach you that you are allowed to pray to God far more freely with your complaints than you probably feel like you can. And so we, we, in our bad condition, sometimes we don't feel like praying and we want to go complain to people. You know, you can complain to God far more aggressively than you may lawfully complain to anybody else. Lord, it looks like you are breaking your promises to me. Like, you're not doing anything you said. Like, you have betrayed me and thrown me off, and you swore you wouldn't. You could pray that. Tell him it looks like that. And then tell him to keep his promise. And he will smile. He has been to me a bear lying in wait. Like a lion in ambush. Lion in ambush. In Lion of Judah, we think about that as a lion of Judah is our protector. He's a defender. His roar scares off all the baddies, right? A lion hunting us? A bear hunting us? He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. Now this is an interesting allusion to Psalm 127 because the literal language, it doesn't say he's caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. The, the literal language is he has caused the sons of his quiver. He's using human beings like arrows against Jeremiah. The Babylonians, the Edomites, the guys we read about in Psalm 137. These are the arrows coming from God. And he uses them to pierce, and I don't know why it changes it to loins, it's kidneys. Um, they're like, well, it said sons earlier, so the second part must mean loins. I don't but So the better translation is kidneys. Okay? The idea is the inward part, kidneys, heart, whatever, you, you see those, it, 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 this... He's shot in a place that's going to cause a, a, a slow, painful death. His inward parts are harmed. 
This is about strife. And it leads to verse 14, I have become the ridicule of all my people. So there's these enemies and now his own people. Right? Jeremiah was, was, was constantly receiving ridicule from his own people as he was bringing the oracles of woe to the people of Jerusalem. I have become the ridicule of all my people. Their taunting song all the day. So this is the covenant people, the external, the visible church. He's the taunting song of them. We're going to see this idea of the taunting song again. The taunting song will come up in terms of the idea of the enemies of the people of God. So honor is taken away. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. Wormwood is normally associated with bitterness. Wormwood is almost just synonymous with bitterness. And you know how you know that? Because this text, this parallelism right here. You find that in other places. In commentaries, you'll find wormwood get referenced, and people are like, oh, this refers to bitterness. Well, here's an internal definition for you. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drink wormwood. So this is an internal thing, this idea of the, the connection of those. And so it's a sign in, in the reality of bitterness, both of them being dealt with together as a parallelism. Verse 16. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. Right, these are outward curses. The, the body from the teeth being shattered with gravel to being covered with ashes. The insides to the outsides. The, the various components and the breakdown and the condition of existence. You have moved my soul far from peace. Right, out with this far from blessings and far from the internal peace. I have forgotten prosperity. The Hebrew literally is good. I've forgotten good. I don't even remember what it's like to have good stuff anymore. Experience good. And I said, My strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Right? The, think about the relationship of strength and hope. Right? Hope is a confident desire for something that you think is good. And strength is your capacity to accomplish stuff. So if you think, I don't have any capability to do anything anymore, and I don't have any expectation of good things being brought to me. So all the things, all of the ordinary means that I would have for these things, they've all perished from the Lord's doing. God has done this. Does that remind you of Job? If you read Job, like, doesn't it feel like kind of a summary of Job? Doesn't Job have wicked people come and destroy his good? Doesn't, doesn't Job have natural disasters come and destroy his own family? Doesn't he have his property get destroyed? Doesn't he have his flesh destroyed? Doesn't he get mocked by his own friends, the people that are claiming to be believers along with him? And so this is the experience here of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who preached oracles of woe against all of the sins that the people wouldn't repent of. 
Verse 19. Remember my affliction and roaming. And the affliction externally, the affliction of the soul and his roaming, his loss of a place of rootedness, the wormwood and the gall. God, remember these things. That's, that's, that's what... If God doesn't remember all of our sufferings, then what comfort is it when he wipes away your tears? If he doesn't know what the tears are for, if he's just saying, put on a happy face, is that nearly as comforting as, I know what this tear is for. I will remove its cause, and I will give you many-fold all the things you have lost. Which one is more comforting? Put on a happy face, or I know, and you will receive many times more. <clears throat> My soul still remembers and sinks within me. Then if you experienced a trauma that makes it so that even now when you remember it, you have a physical reaction. There's something where you you go back and think on this stuff and it creates a physical stress reaction in your body. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. He is recalling to mind the reality that all of these things have come from God and God remembers all of them, and therefore he has hope. If we try to alleviate God of being the cause of evil, if we try to alleviate God of bringing every element of our suffering into our lives, if we try to alleviate God of any of that, then the grounds for hope dissipates. God causes it. God plans it. God uses it for our good. And there are many, 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 many times over blessings to be given and so we can have hope. God is appealed to that Jeremiah says, remember my affliction and roaming. The roaming is this idea of a sojourning in this world, the, the lack of home. But it could also be associated with the idea of Roaming from God, the, the sins, him remembering sin and remembering the way in which God brings bitterness in it. But the bitterness of this world and bitterness associated with sin are both reminders of the fact that God is the one who saves us from the world and from our sin. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. And he follows on with, the things, the gospel truths that help him to have hope as well. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. And through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. God preserves us. God does not stop upholding us. He does not destroy our faith. He preserves our faith. And God does not allow our immortal souls to cease. He will give us good forever. Because his compassions fail not. He doesn't stop having love toward us. He does not cease to have mercy toward us. He does not change, and therefore he does not change his compassions, and therefore he does not consume us. 
The language there is somewhat similar to Malachi 3, 6. His mercies and his compassions are new every morning. His mercies and his compassions are new every morning. The blessedness of his mercy toward us is manifested in him giving us things for us in our weakness and our suffering. He is with us in our suffering. Not that God suffers. He cannot suffer. He changes not. It's that he is with us while we suffer. And he cares for us and gives us what we need in our suffering. And his mercy toward us, though we fail, is new every morning. So what his supply is, is new every morning. And his mercy toward us is new every morning. It never runs out. It never grows old. It never gets stale. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Okay, so the first therefore I have hope is based upon realizing that all of this awfulness has come from God. And the second statement of hope is a reminder of all the goodness that comes from God. If there's no God, there's no good or evil. There's no good or bad. It's all meaningless. Do you see how the idea that there is evil and the idea that there is a blessed condition and a cursed condition are things that necessitate good and evil, necessitate a definer of good and evil, necessitate God. This is often called the moral argument for God that you can't have meaningful differentiation without the highest good being defined and the highest good as a meaningful differentiator without God is breakdownable. It's incoherent. The Lord is my portion. So now there's this idea of what you possess. So if you contrast feeling like you're hedged in by curse, aging in your flesh and skin, having your bones broken, being besieged, having bitterness and woe, dark places, having a bear light in wait for you, having a lion ambush you, having the sons of God's quiver be like arrows that pierce your kidneys. And you say, you can have that and have the Lord as your portion, or you can avoid all of that and not have the Lord as your portion. Have a grand old life. Die in your bed comfortable. 174. You choose the first every time. Short life, suffering, long life, suffering. But the Lord is your portion. If you do not have the Lord, you don't have the truth. By knowing God is knowing the truth. We are enslaved to sin without God. And with the knowledge of God, we become free. We change. And there's a progress. It's not always instantaneous. It's not always the charge. It's not always big victories, big victories, big gains. What we have is the gradual progress of the truth, making progress in the heart, working its way through your hands, working its way into your patterns of speech. It is something that allows us to work with other people towards a common goal rather than being individuals that are stuck alone and alienated. 
The knowledge of God is something that we can share with others and increase our own possession of it rather than always losing out when we share. It addresses everything so that all blessings and curses, all choices, all events have meaning. And we will never be able to exhaust all of the riches of the knowledge of God. We will take all the knowledge we have of God in this life into the next and nothing can cause us to lose it. It brings fulfillment and joy and contentedness. And it is the ultimate goal. It is the highest good. It is the thing to buy and not sell. Therefore, I have hope. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Because He will cause the earth to be filled with the knowledge of Himself. And He will reward every sacrifice made in His name. And He will reward every trial that was imposed on us that we went through in faith. You don't have to deal with it every second perfectly in order to get the reward. Job is going to get rewards for the early part of the book. Job is going to get rewards for the portions of the middle of the book that he did pretty well in. Job is going to get rewards for believing the young Elihu when he told him what he needed to believe. And Job is going to get rewards for believing God when God lambasted Job pretty, pretty solid. He won't get rewards for some of the imperfect things, but he will get rewards for all the things he did in faith during that process. And he received rewards in that life, and he will receive many, many more on the Day of Judgment that we will see, along with the rest of the human race and the angelic host when we see God's judgment there by the mediatorial king, Jesus Christ. Through the Lord's mercies, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope. Therefore, I hope in him. This is... This is the prophet Jeremiah preaching to himself. This is the prophet Jeremiah preaching to himself. He is meditating on truths in the midst of suffering. He is taking all of his complaints and laying them at God's feet, complaining intentionally, poetically, in detail. Like, could you imagine writing a poem about all the things that are awful in your life and offering them back to God? God, I wrote a poem for you. You've made my life awful. Things are really bad. This makes me sad. Like, this has been offered. So offering these complaints to God. Offer your complaints to God. And then offer your praises and your gratitude. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Jeremiah, I'm sure, is real happy that this is useful for the church and everything. 
But you know Jeremiah is most benefited by these words that Jeremiah wrote for Jeremiah. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This waiting quietly does not mean waiting without complaint to God. This waiting quietly does not mean waiting without complaint to God. It means that we do not sinfully condemn God. We say, God, you've brought these things and you're good. This is just. But God, you have promised better things. And so you argue with him. But this quietude is the, you're not raging against God as unjust or evil. And you're not complaining to others in a sinful way or calling God into question to them. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Right? We are told it's good for a man to work in his youth, which is one of the ways that a yoke is talked about. Work itself is a sort of trial when we deal with the fact that there's toil. But there's also this idea of suffering. And so here, the yoke is referring to suffering, so the suffering that comes forth. In particular, this idea of, of doing work that doesn't bring immediate, apparent reward in this life. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth, to work in his youth, to suffer trials in his youth, to suffer in his youth. I am so grateful that the Lord shattered my absurd, arrogant pride in my youth. It was not fun. But I am grateful for it. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Right, how does your mouth get in the dust? Right? Well, start bowing and then bow lower. Right, this idea of, of kiss the dust. Right, this idea of be humbled. To bow so low that your mouth touches the ground. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. This is the text that I believe the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching on when he talked about turning the other cheek. The idea of you have been struck be struck again that you might be humble. Be full of reproach. Verse 31, For the Lord will not cast off forever, and for His elect, He doesn't let your suffering go on forever. He will return you to the Son. He will cause His countenance to be enjoyably felt. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Now his compassions are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. And even though he causes you grief, 
He won't cast you off forever. He will. He will show you compassion. He will show you compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. And his mercies are infinite. He is infinite. And the ways he shows mercy is infinite. He will give mercies to the elect forever. The whole history of his dealings with the elect is the history of him multiplying out mercies by the number of persons and moments. The number of elect persons and the number of moments that those elect persons go through is a multiplying number that goes faster than the national debt number. It increases by moment and person. And as he adds elect persons, he is increasing the speed at which he is giving out mercies. And he will show compassion to you as an individual according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict, and again, willingly is a horrible translation that undermines the entirety of the point of the book so far. (coughs) For he does not afflict from his heart. In other words, he doesn't afflict from an attitude of hatred which is ironic because it started with the idea of the rod of his wrath. It's the rod of his wrath, which is the external, but he doesn't have the attitude of wrath towards his people. It does not come from his heart. There is not the reality of wrath towards you in his heart. He does not afflict from his heart, nor grieve the children of men, very specifically the elect, from his heart. Now, earlier on, it says he does cause grief, right? Look at verse 32. Though he causes grief. So, it's not saying, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the children of men willingly. It just said he causes grief. The idea is, for the elect, his affliction is not out of hatred, and the grief that he brings to his elect children of men is not out of hatred. Now, what we have following here is a list of the types of wickedness that have been put onto Jeremiah and to the people of Jerusalem. Verse 34, to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth or the land, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause. The Lord does not approve. So this is God not approving of sin. God causes it, but he does not approve. He will punish it. These are the things the Babylonians did. They crushed without justification all of the people of the visible church. They crushed so many of them. Not every individual, but they crushed so many of them under their feet. They made them prisoners. They enslaved them. They turned aside justice. They wouldn't hear out cases. They wouldn't differentiate. And they did it in the sight of God. And they subvert lawful causes. God doesn't approve of this. Verse 37. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? It's a rhetorical question. The idea here is either that it is the command here in terms of a decree, so God's choosing what happens. So in other words, if one person says, I want to do this thing, who can make that thing happen if God doesn't 
plan for it to happen. Nobody. Or the idea is that if a man does something that God has not commanded, like regulated principle style, then it's something that God will judge. So either one of those. Verse 38, It is not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? And that makes it, even though it would be really nice to have a really easy regulated principle proof text in verse 37, I don't think it is. I think it's talking about the decree, that God choosing what happens because of what verse 38 is about. Verse 39, why should a living man complain a man for the punishment of his sins? So we have this idea of God controls everything. God's the one who gives woe and weal. And so what basis is there to complain in the sense of God is unjust for the punishment of his sins? So this is a reminder for all of us why should we not complain in the sense of saying God's evil? Because none of us deserve any blessings and all we deserve is curse all the time. So if we receive discipline or if we are reprobate and we receive punishment, what basis, what grounds is there for complaint in the sense that God is unjust? But the elect who are objects of his mercy and understand, God, you're just. Every suffering you bring into my life is just. But at the same time, God, you have promised compassions. And you have promised mercies. You see the difference of the approach? God, you're unjust to me. Why are you doing this? Versus God, you're just to me. But Father, you've promised mercy. Those two approaches. The second one is a safe course. And that's how you can bring your complaints to God. The first one is the way of destruction. So we go from these contemplations of Jeremiah as a sort of Job. And we move into the community. Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. So this is the, this is, this is the communal response. And so now this is the, the first one is, is sort of the, the righteous man undergoing trial as opposed to discipline or punishment. And now we have, this is the response of the church as it's undergoing suffering, as it's undergoing trial. Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us Lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. Now the idea here isn't that God doesn't pardon the sin in the sense of judicially and ultimately for salvation. The idea is he is not pardoning and lifting the curse right now. So we need to repent and we need to ask him to lift that curse. That is institutionally what happens. So God only forgives the sins of individuals in the sense of who is responsible and is going to have an immortal soul that undergoes punishments. States don't have a consciousness that suffers forever. Churches don't have a consciousness that suffers forever. Households don't have a consciousness that suffers forever. Only individual souls do. And so when we're talking about the idea of pardon on an institutional level, God doesn't pardon the sins of institutions. He doesn't remove curse unless that institution repents. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. 
you have made us an offscouring and refuse in the midst of the peoples. Right? So as a national body, the prayers to remove the curse would not be heard unless and until there was a national repentance. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare have come upon us. Desolation and destruction. And now, we switch back to the individual. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. This national repentance does not happen until Daniel, as the prime minister of Babylon, prays for forgiveness on their behalf as a civil magistrate in the book of Daniel. And God sends an angel to him to tell him that at the time of his prayer, the removal of the curse begins and there is a sending of a decree to rebuild the temple that will occur. His actions as a magistrate, as the prime minister of Babylon, have a covenantal effect to remove national sins and the curses. So Jeremiah, my eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption. Till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees, my eyes bring suffering to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. Okay, the destruction of the daughter of my people. Jerusalem is the daughter of the people of Judah. And there's also the individuals who are literal daughters, young women, maidens. And so there is the destruction and the sin that is occurring. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. Now, a lot of the time, the usage of being cut off in the Old Testament refers to excommunication, being cut off from the people. And here, it's he's cut off from retreat. And because the people who are throwing stones at him, the people who don't like him, a lot of the people that are going after him are people who don't like him as a prophet bringing to them the word of God. And he suffered, ironically, for true prophecy, people throwing stones at him. And rather than excommunicating sinners, what are they doing? They're cutting off his way of retreat. Jeremiah is a pretty good poet. I wonder, you find stuff like this and you go, wow, that's real clever, Jeremiah. Good job. And you go, how many have I missed? How many, how many literary devices, how many insights, how many depths to this text have I just passed over in dumb stupidity and ignorance? That's, there's so much in the scriptures, so much in this divinely inspired poetry. Verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. The, all this, this reversing of curse, now the call is being heard for him as an individual, even though the call is not being heard for the corporate group. 
when you as an individual call out other people's sins and call out against what is being done, you can separate yourself from the curse. And so you can find, even though the corporate entity has curse on it, you can find yourself being separated from the curse by actions that help to differentiate truth from error, light from darkness, righteousness from unrighteousness, holiness from profanation. And so there's this idea that he called, God heard, God drew near, and says, do not fear. When you find do not fear, overwhelmingly you have do not fear, I am with you, do not fear, I am with you, do not fear, I am with you. The I am with you and the statements of having courage. Be courageous, be strong, I'm with you. Right? This idea that God's with you, he is going to help you to conquer. The book of Numbers has that. Every time in the book of Numbers, when the cloud or pillar of fire left from over the tabernacle to go out in front, <coughs> Moses would say at the beginning of the day, Lord, go out and scatter your enemies. And every day when he would come back and come back over the tabernacle, he would say, Lord, you know, be with your people. Protect us. The power of God to defeat and the power of God to protect. He's calling upon this. We see this in the Mosaic writings. We see this in Joshua. We see this in the Great Commission. God is with us. He tells us to be courageous and to not fear. And he tells us to conquer. And then look at this. Look at verses 58 through 60 here. You've got all this language of the work of Christ as mediator. O oh Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. Who is your advocate? You have redeemed my life. Who paid for your sins? O oh Lord, you have seen how I am wronged. Who will be the most trustworthy witness to say exactly what has happened? Judge my case. He is your advocate. He is the redeemer. He is the perfect witness. And he judges the case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. He saves us from our own sins and he avenges us against all of our enemies. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me, the lips of my enemies, and their whispering against me all the day. You know, sometimes you worry, people are slandering me, people are saying bad things against me, they're saying it in private, I'm never going to get to defend myself. That's okay, God will crush them. He will crush them. God have mercy. He hears all the whispering. Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song. Right? The people inside of the church, the unfaithful parts of the visible church, this prophet is the taunting song of them. The people outside of the church that hate the church, this prophet is their taunting song. And God knows all the lines and says, Did you sing, Hey Diddy Diddy, Jeremiah's a Loser? It didn't rhyme, it was a bad one, but you sang it. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. That one right there. Whoa. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You get that, and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. And, and but Father, I ask that you cause them to 
convert, or punish them real hard. This one he's saying, Father, repay them, punish them real hard, and make it so they never see the truth. That prayer to veil their hearts is a prayer to not convert them. Your curse be upon them. In your anger, pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. The only people we could know that we could pray that about would be very specifically the reprobate. And you don't have a list of the reprobate. So what you do is you pray, Lord, these people, if they are reprobate, veil them and destroy them and make that raising up of them for your glory. Destroy them. But, Father, if these people are yours, show them mercy. Convert them. Cause them to turn. Make their repentance large and visible. So there's Lamentation 3. It's a hard text. The hard sayings. But they're true. And they give us weapons to know we can take all the curse that's piled upon us and hand it back to God and tell Him to give us blessing back. We know we have a Redeemer who lives. And we know that the enemies of the people of God, all of them will be subdued. And so now, we come to the close of the strong center of the book of Lamentations. Comments, questions, objections, voting members, and those with speaking rights.